Birthing a Nation, Pregnancy and the Pandemic, a Go Loud original. He did get to see Spencer for a few minutes after he was born, but Spencer was then rushed off to NICU. I was brought back to the ward. Um, I was on my own. I was sore and I couldn't get out of bed for 12 hours. Um, as soon as it, as morning time came and the 12 hours w- were up, I showered um, and I went to be by Spencer's bedside. It was so painful and so uncomfortable, but I knew I needed to be there because I was the only one who was allowed in. As an inpatient, I was permitted two hours a day um, and then I'd go back to my room. It was torture. He was across the hall and I couldn't go back to him because I'd already had my two hours. It will haunt me forever. Just the guilt that I didn't question it either. Was it because I was on my own? Because if Brian was there, maybe I would have asked. Um, Just you're in such a vulnerable position because you're trying to advocate for yourself as well. Hi, folks, and welcome to Birthing a Nation, Pregnancy in the Pandemic, a Go Loud original series. I'm Alison Curtis, and I'm joined by producer D. Reddy today. Yes, it's me. I'm back again uh, on the podcast inspired by an Instagram post, which asked whether anyone out there would tell the real stories of those who had been uh, affected by the COVID-19 restrictions in maternity hospitals. And that's exactly what we've been doing over the past number of episodes. We've heard from Amy De Bruin, who put out the original call to arms on Instagram. And last week, we heard Sandy Connolly's story, who has been working as a doula throughout this whole period. Yeah, and of course, across the series, we've also had the amazing opportunity to get regular updates from your co-host, Sue Murphy. And uh, as we heard last week, it was a particularly nice update because she had just given birth to her second child, baby Thomas. So Sue isn't uh, with us today. We don't have an update except to say that all are still happy and healthy, um, but we will be hearing from her in the coming weeks. It's so fantastic to be able to hear how they've been getting on. And Sue has been at the center of getting this podcast made. She worked tirelessly right up until the moment I think he arrived. And it's such an important thing to have done. And uh, yeah, well, you know, we just want to send our best to her. Yeah, this is it. Like she was literally sending us WhatsApp notes, I think, for us to use in this. <laughs> the day before she went in uh, to have Thomas, like she's so amazing. And like, the main goal in this that that Sue wanted to achieve was to allow women um, and families to tell their stories, which was essentially the crux of of, of that initial Insta post that that Amy Devroon had put out there, because it was just after the Rotunda series had come out, and I think there was this general feeling that like people weren't actually being able to share what had actually happened to them and and how that had impacted them. And, you know, even now as the restrictions are being lifted, I think it's it's really important that we still give voice to those people. Um, because, you know, there's been a lot of people getting in touch via the maternity at goloudnow.com email account. Um, and it's as much about sharing and, and healing through sharing uh, for a lot of people is the sense that I get from those emails. 
Absolutely, Deed. That's 100% right. And my nose, you might, like, I feel like my voice sounds a little bit nasally. And that's honestly because I uh, recently listened back just a few moments ago to this, you know, the story that's going to be included in this podcast in Amory, as um, I know that Linda did and you did as well. And we were really emotionally charged listening to it. I had a cry listening to it as well. And she's a remarkable woman. And she did hear the podcast, which is why she got in touch with you and with Linda and want to share her story. Amory tells it so, so well. And uh, I have to say, definitely, this story comes with a trigger warning. It's a really, really sad story of herself, her experience and her son, Spencer. So definitely, definitely mind yourselves when you're having a listen. My name is Anne-Marie and I live in Sandyford with my partner Brian and our son Louis who is nearly five. He'll be five in December. Having listened to the Birthing a Nation podcasts, I got in touch with Dee and decided I'd like to share my story just because everyone who has shared their stories have just been through so so much like mentally and emotionally and they're just so so brave for sharing their stories during the pandemics and the impact that the risk the maternity restrictions have had on everybody. When we found out we were pregnant in January, we were so excited and Louis was so excited to have a sibling. My first booking in scan was in February. At that appointment, my nerves were kind of put at ease because I had explained to the midwife that prior to this pregnancy in 2016, when Louis was born, um, I had preeclampsia help syndrome which is a rare form of preeclampsia and um, it had just come on suddenly and Louis was born at 33 weeks and four days by emergency section. That pregnancy uh, was a bit of a whirlwind. He was seven weeks early. He was fine. He was premature, but he was four pound five. So, you know, we weren't overly concerned. March 2020, that's when the big announcement was made. The schools were closed. We were leaving work, what we thought was going to be for two weeks. And at that point, it just felt a little eerie leaving the office. But, um, you know, that was all well and good. Working from home, the pregnancy was no problems. You know, I, I had the morning sickness, but it was more in the evening time that I'd feel tired. But everything was good. And... I had a good feeling because, you know, our early scan, there was a heartbeat. The 12-week scan, there was a heartbeat. And because I was on aspirin and I had mentioned the preeclampsia help syndrome previously, I, I didn't worry as much with this pregnancy. And then our 20-week scan, I thought at that point, you know, partners would be allowed in, but that wasn't the case. So I drove in for the scan by myself. I didn't sleep the night before. I was so nervous because you just, uh, well, me, myself anyway, I just, you know, I, I just overthink things and I was waiting for, you know, I didn't want to hear, I'm sorry, there's no heartbeat. I was thinking ahead and all the scenarios that could happen and Brian's not with me. I really wanted him 
to be there. And I know he really wanted to be there as well because it's the 20 week scan. It's the big one. And I just felt so bad on the drive in that he wasn't going to be there. We had decided that morning that we'd uh, find out the sex of the baby. So like when I went into the scan and the sonographer um, had started um, doing her checks and, you know, put the, the jelly on um, and I had my eyes closed and I didn't look up, up at the screen when when it first came on and I didn't ask if I could record or anything because I just presumed it was it was a no-no and in hindsight now I wish I had asked but anyway um you know everything was good there was his heartbeat he was kind of moving around he was blocking what she needed to check and everything was good she did mention he was measuring slightly on the smaller side but not to be concerned because it's normal for for them to measure smaller at the 20 week scan so she had uh, booked me in for an additional growth scan at uh, 28 weeks i think it was 26 or 28 weeks and at that scan she asked if we wanted to find out the sex of the baby so I said yes we did and at the scan we found out that we were having a baby boy so after the scan I was excited and nervous and I really just wanted to have Brian there to share this moment but I had to ring them and obviously I wasn't crying because it was just excitement and so I made the phone call and told them that we were having a baby boy and Louis had said to us that he wanted a boy not a girl baby so you know he was very excited to be having a boy baby and when we got home we had uh, like it was just such such excitement in the house and then we started sending you know as you do to family groups and close friends pictures of the scan and you know everyone obviously were so excited for us and for Louis as well so um that that was all good from there and just I felt so bad just that I was there and was able to see him on the scan and then I had to go home and tell uh, and like go home to Brian knowing that he wasn't there um but that was all good and um you know because of my history with the preeclampsia help syndrome I had had additional appointments for blood pressure checks and on occasion when I would go in my blood pressure would be slightly raised so I'd be sent to the day ward uh, for monitoring and it would come back down so at that point I wasn't prescribed any blood pressure medication because it didn't appear to be high all the time and um you know between appointments i was never i never felt sick or there was no signs 
that anything was wrong. I had I knew I was going to have to give birth early just based on my experience with Louie. So I had always imagined um or not even imagined but I'd set a uh, a time frame that it was going to be either 33 weeks. You know, I never thought it would be any earlier than that, but I knew I would never go full term uh for some for some reason just um I just didn't think now my bump was small but it was also small on Louis so I wasn't concerned about that but it kind of stuck in my mind when the sonographer had said he was measuring on the smaller side but when she said there was no cause for concern you know my whole trust was there and I don't know maybe if Brian was there would I have asked uh like you know, I did say, are you sure there's nothing to be concerned about? And she said, no. I had an appointment booked for the 14th of May. I don't know why I didn't drive in, but Brian and, oh yeah, because we thought it was going to be a very quick appointment. So Brian and Louie um, gave me a lift in and dropped me at the door. I was still working and, you know, I had told uh, my boss that I would be back in the afternoon and went in for my appointment they checked my blood pressure it was slightly raised but the heartbeat everything was good and off I went up to the day ward for monitoring and all I had with me was my handbag because I was expecting to come home I was there for hours and my blood pressure wasn't really coming back down so when the doctor came to see me, she had given me a prescription for iron tablets and blood pressure tablets. And just before I was about to leave, I had just asked one of the nurses, would she mind just doing another quick scan just to make sure everything was OK before I went on my merry way? And she must have noticed something um, on the scan and went back over to the doctor. So I was told to just go back and uh, take a seat, which I did. And nothing was kind of going through my head at that point. But I'd been sat there for hours and my battery was about to die on my phone. And I was kind of writing notes on appointments that I had and just trying to keep track of everything and um, just... When um, the doctor came back over to me then, um, I I didn't know what was kind of going on. And she said they were going to send me for um, an ultrasound. So I in between all this, I'd been texting Brian and saying, uh, I'm going to be here for another few hours. Uh, not sure what time I'm going to be finished at. And then I sent him a message to tell him that uh, they were sending me for an ultrasound. Um, not sure why, but I'll give you a ring when I'm finished. So when I was in at the ultrasound, they had uh, done some artery art, uh, arterial Doppler scans to check the blood flow from the umbilical cord. And um, they noticed that it was occasionally absent so they sent me back to the day ward because from there on they were going to keep me in then when when a bed became available I was moved into the ward and I was on blood pressure tablets and um and then you know I was kind of settled in and one of the midwives said to me you're here with us for the long haul 
And I was like, oh God, 33 weeks. Because I had always had that in my head from um, from Louis. And I was like, oh, again, I have no bag packed. And then, you know, you're just uh, in the room alone with your own thoughts, not really sure what's going on, not really understanding why you're being kept in. Just, you know, they're going to monitor me I'm on bed rest and they're going to monitor the baby at 25 weeks four days and the blood flow reversed and the options we had were to do nothing and let nature take its course Spencer would have passed in utero due to lack of oxygen or we'd have an emergency section his chances of survival were still not great but he would be rushed off to intensive care again I had to call my partner and I did ask for him to be allowed in to discuss this and he was we lived 20 minutes away and it felt like an hour before he arrived in again I was in a room on my own waiting for him to come in we spoke to the neonatal team and I was then prepped for surgery Brian had to leave while I was being prepped for surgery but he was allowed back in for the section He was allowed in while I was in recovery, but he had to leave again once I was moved to a ward. He did get to see Spencer for a few minutes after he was born, but Spencer was then rushed off to NICU. I was brought back to the ward. Um, I was on my own. I was sore and I couldn't get out of bed for 12 hours. Um, As soon as as morning time came and the 12 hours were up, I showered um, and I went to be by Spencer's bedside. It was so painful and so uncomfortable, but I knew I needed to be there because I was the only one who was allowed in. As an inpatient, I was permitted two hours a day um, and then I'd go back to my room. It was torture. He was across the hall and I couldn't go back to him because I'd already had my two hours. It will haunt me forever. Just the guilt that I didn't question it either. Was it because I was on my own? Because if Brian was there, maybe I would have asked. Um, Just you're in such a vulnerable position because you're trying to advocate for yourself as well. I read to Spencer and I told him all about his big brother and our families and I talked to him and let him know that I was his mommy and I just needed him to hear my voice and know I was there. I held his fingers when I was allowed to and then after my visits with him I'd go back to my room and I was expressing at this point because he was too tiny so I couldn't breastfeed. I'd make lists for when he he was due to come home and I'd send pictures of of him to Brian and Louis and send pictures to friends and family as well. I never thought we were ever going to lose him. I knew we would be visiting him him in NICU for a very long time. The FaceTimes were tough as well. I hadn't seen Brian or Louis in two weeks and I was a shell of myself. I still smiled though because I was so glad Spencer was here and safe and I put me to one side so I could concentrate on him. I told myself I'd look after me when he was stronger, but for now, 
it was just I had to give all of me to him um, I'd ring from my room to see how he was doing on the days that I'd already had my two hours and I tried to break it up to an hour in the morning and one hour in the evening just so he wasn't there completely on his own. At this point as well, dads were only permitted to have an hour a week and they had to book in their time slots on WhatsApp. Looking back, partners should have been allowed in regardless it could have all been done safely and they could have been in full ppe in the NICU you never know what the outcome is going to be and the guilt of not being with Spencer kills me Brian did get to see Spencer on the Tuesday and we were in there um because it was the the two of us we were allowed in for an hour I think it was because it it was both of us there and Spencer became ill that night in the middle of the night but the NICU team were working on him throughout the night and they managed to stabilize him Brian rang to check in at 10 o'clock and you know he was told that he'd had a rough couple of hours but he he was stable and then I had to get up in the middle of the night to express and I was uh, injecting myself as well um for uh, medication to stop blood clots and I also had to get up to express so I think it was about two o'clock in the morning I had rang and they told me that they'd managed to stabilize him and they had a few more things that that they were going to try and we got a call then about six or half six in the morning to come in he was stable but just in case they wanted us there the whole day was a bit of a blur Spencer had had so many scans, blood transfusions. And when we arrived in and I looked at his face, I knew he was saying goodbye. So at about 10 minutes to six, the doctor came over to us and, you know, had said that they would try uh, one more thing and... At 10 10 to 6 that evening, Spencer sadly lost his fight to stay with us. We sat at the end of his incubator um, as the doctors did everything they could to resuscitate him. Just watching them um, do compressions on his tiny chest. We knew we were there, but it's like you're just in an outer body experience. I it just it took a lot for it to sink in at that point um we gave our permission for them to stop and Spencer slipped away he had literally slipped away just a few seconds before he was handed over to me and his little body was still warm that I kept asking, were they sure he was gone? But I knew the answer. Um, so we got to hold him um, and cuddle him and kiss him because they had taken all the wires out. And we left 
the NICU ward and went to the parents' room with him. We'd made that decision because it would then allow other parents come back into NICU to spend time with their babies. Spencer stayed in the chapel of rest in the hospital where he was looked after by the chaplain and the bereavement team. This was his little safe place. So we knew that was the right decision and we were at peace with that decision and we knew they'd keep him safe. We were able to visit him for the whole week in the chapel of rest for a couple of hours and we were able to hold him and spend time with him together. We have a lot of photos uh, that were taken by the bereavement midwife and uh, clay prints that uh, we received in our memory box from Felicon. We held his funeral a week later with uh, the 10 people that we were allowed to have at his funeral. And the chaplain had held a little service for us and she did a beautiful little leaflet for Spencer's Day. We still struggle emotionally um, and just the guilt of not being able to be with Spencer 24-7 and then just Louis never getting to meet him and just he never got to meet any of of his family either Um, and you know we knew well I knew anyway that you know extended family wouldn't be allowed into the hospital and I never expected that but needed to have your partner with you and to this day I will always have the opinion whether it be my own personal opinion that partners should have been allowed in because pregnant women and partners would have been so so cautious and stopped seeing people or going outside a bubble. I even stopped going to do the groceries. Brian took over doing the groceries. So I wasn't coming into contact with anybody. I have dipped in and out of the Better Maternity campaign. And I have been in touch with Linda Kelly and Emma from um, In Our Shoes as well. And, you know, they have both been really, really good. And I had sent Linda a message on the morning of the Better Maternity um, campaign um, just to tell her that I was I was with them, but to protect my own mental health, I just couldn't be there in person. But, you know, they've done great, great work um, on, on being so vocal and being a voice for many people who who haven't been able to to be a voice for themselves I've kind of dipped in and out of it but like now we talk about Spencer all the time um you know Louis uh we got this little Felicon bear and Louis we had put pictures up of of Spencer and we had our Spencer wall and Louis had um asked one day if um if Spencer came home and jumped into the bear and yeah he's now our Spencer bear 
so you know he he's um he's missed out on so much of i've seen his brother but um you know he, he's so innocent and you know we've been through a lot in our lives and seeing this from his eyes where he hasn't been touched by the world yet and you know he just has his innocent take on it and he's always asking if spencer is happy on his cloud with his little friends and you know he's been looked after by his granddad and you know he's he knows spencer's in our hearts and he's all around us but there are days where you know he asks if spencer can come out of our hearts and just be in our house God, Amory is just so, so remarkable. And she told her story so clearly. And Dee, the thing that I think is that the point where I think a lot of us just couldn't get through it without crying was just this woman having suffered something so tragic, talking about her own guilt and how she's going to deal with that. Yeah. And I think the thing that really, really just floored me in terms of how the the sorry I'm getting emotional again um but in terms of how how um Amory and her her partner Brian and and even their son Louis um like were affected by the restrictions like you know Brian got so little time with Spencer um and Amory got the most but even at that like it's a, it's an unconscionable amount of time to get spend with a member of your family who was here for such a short time and I just I uh, I'm, I can't wrap my head around that for them I don't know what that must be like I just think that for me envisioning her, this woman who is and she you know suffered from preeclampsia before and had health conditions that I very much identify with and just thinking she's trying to mind herself which does require a lot of attention a medical condition that she has and she's not even thinking about herself she's just sitting across the hall like thinking about this little boy this little person that she made and that she can't get to him and it's just absolutely it's cruel is what it is yeah it really is and and uh, like even the, the the part where she's I can't remember if I put it into the final edit but where she's talking about um about how when she's going in for the scans because they know about her previous conditions and the previous things and and because Louis was early and 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 light that that she hadn't worried as much um and you know that just must have, must have made the whole shockwave of the the whole scenario that they ended up in just all the worst yeah no she's an incredible woman and i'm sure so many people have been so affected by listening to that and uh, we really want to thank her for sharing that story. Absolutely. Um, very, very humbled to have been able to chat to her for it. And as always with our podcast, the wonderful Linda Kelly joins us from Women Ascend, who is so, so essential to this podcast and to the movement as a whole. And you definitely, I know you and I were speaking just before about Emery's story and you've got wonderful thoughts on that. And you also have a serious amount of updates because there's been a lot of activity on better maternity care over the last week. Um, but you reacted the same way I did, obviously, to Emery's story. Yeah, I was in floods of tears, Alison, listening to it. I don't think anybody who listens to it will be, it will, everyone will cry. Um, I don't think you can listen to the emotion of that and you know from Anne-Marie's perspective 
so beautiful and so controlled to share her story with all of us, you know, um, is such a, an immense privilege for us, you know, that she would share her story in that way. But what has struck me from when Anne-Marie first contacted me and from listening to her say it again on the podcast is, you know, and I think, you know, for a lot of us as parents, this happens. Um, but I find it as well, particularly on the birth of my first daughter, we internalize a guilt about the system that isn't our guilt to carry. And so I just want to say to Anne-Marie and to everybody listening who that guilt resonated with, this is not your fault. It really isn't. Um, it took hundreds of us a year and two months to get significant progress on the issue of partner restrictions. We had to get 60,000 people to sign a petition. We had to organise a protest outside the door. We had to lobby politicians again and again and again. No one individual in any one hospital could have taken this on and won. And I think Anne-Marie and I think all of us know in our hearts that had we challenged something in the hospital at that time, we would have been brushed off and we would have been told, sorry, it's hospital policy. And, you know, so I think we just need to be really clear about where the fault is here. And I think one of the things we have really tried to say so much in this campaign is this is not the fault of frontline healthcare workers. This is not the fault of the midwives and the obstetricians. This is a management decision-making process. And it is about putting in a system that is easy for management. And it's not about recognizing or centering the lived experience of those coming through maternity services. And never is that more apparent than in Anne-Marie's story because Anne-Marie was in for a regular antenatal appointment, a regular checkup, and partners are still receiving restricted from those scenarios so for somebody who's coming in who may face the same situation that Anne-Marie faced you know things are no different now than they were for Anne-Marie and that is very very hard to take and so while we do have some progress it is again frustratingly and I think we would have talked about this a few episodes ago when the HSC outlined the progress from last Monday, the 1st of November, hospitals are now allowed allow partners access from 8 a.m. to 9 p.m. Now, compliance has been quicker in a lot of hospitals than it would have been previously, but there's still some hospitals saying, no, we're not going to implement it. Mullingar, first one out the blocks to say, no, we're not going to do this. And so many traumatic stories coming in about people's care in Mullingar that are so difficult to hear. Linda, what does that mean, though? What does that mean when they aren't compliant of the new restriction li being lifted? What does that, like, do, do they have a leg to stand on? So in Mullingar right now, you can only visit your partner and your new baby from 6 p.m. to 8 p.m. That's it. If you're in Cork, you can go in at 7 a.m. and leave at 11 p.m. Um, now, we have obviously straight away raised this with the HSE. Um, there's th three things for people to do. One is people should document their complaints with the director of midwifery for that hospital. And then they have to complain to the hospital group director of nursing and midwifery. Um, most of that information is available on the HSE website. The other thing that we're trying to do as a campaign is we have started a compliance check that we're running through the month of November. It's very simple and very easy to do. And we're really relying on everybody across the country to help us with this so that we can identify where the gaps still are. Um, so it's definitely going better than we 
thought it would, um, but there are still outliers and there is still a postcode lottery and we're not accepting it and we're not going to allow it to continue. So we really would ask people what they can do is they can call their hospital or email their hospital. They can log that on the compliance check. The link is in my bio on Instagram at Women Ascend. Um, it's also the same on Twitter at Linda B. Tweeting. Um, and then it's the same if they're in for an antenatal appointment as well. And like this, just to kind of tell you, Alison, a little two examples I want to give you about why we're asking everybody to do this, right? Is I got a message last week from a woman in Wexford who had an antenatal appointment, who at her antenatal appointment was advised that there were no changes happening in Wexford. I put that on Instagram and I got a message from somebody who was currently an inpatient in Wexford where there is a sign on the wall in the ward that says your partner is welcome to come in between 8am and 9pm. So in the the people on the first floor are telling people something different to what's on the ground floor. That's how bad the communication is in the HSC at the moment and in the hospitals. And again, people will know this. People who are following this podcast who are attending the Rotunda will be really upset this week because on Tuesday night, the Rotunda put up a very vague statement on their website that said, you know, COVID passes would be required from the 1st of December. There was no clarity about who would need that, about what sort of exceptions, no information whatsoever about any of it. It, the information that was on the website was contradicted by the director of midwifery in the emails the next day. And we now have an, a clarity from the HSE that they have not updated their guidelines to make the COVID cert a requirement for access for nominated partner, support partners. And so what we have is this huge level of distress for families for no good reason. And I'm so, so sick of it and I am so so tired of it and so better maternity care even though we've made significant progress we are still fighting strong and we're still keep going so I would encourage people come find us on the hashtag you know on Facebook on Twitter on Instagram are the main platforms that we use and Linda, you make it very easy, you know, easy as well, Linda, be tweeting um, because you have the hashtag compliance check. And I looked at it myself. I've retweeted it myself. And it's very easy to click through and fill out that information. So you've made that very accessible to people. Yeah, it really won't take people more than two or three minutes, you know, so uh, we are because like people are busy and people are pregnant and they're tired and they're, you know, they're trying to this is really taking a toll on people's mental health. Absolutely. Linda, can I ask you as well? So, yes, obviously, the you know, great strides have been made. And that is like so impressive for you, obviously, for, for me to be speaking to you about that and knowing that you're a driving force. But we are at a stage whereby, you know, hopefully all restrictions are lifted. Hopefully things do go back to pre, you know, pandemic visitation, right? Everything. But we're still left with care issues in women's health. And do you sometimes kind of stand back and go, oh, like this could be the, this battle will be won and it will. And then, but then we've got this to go on to and this to go on to. Like I basically in short, I'm asking a long roundabout way of going, how do you do it? Like, how do you get your energy? <laughs> well, I'm certainly not feeling it today. I'm very, I'm very tired today. Um, uh, so I think two things um, on that. One, absolutely. The six of us involved in better maternity care, and it is only six of us, six women. Um, we absolutely know this is only the first chapter of a very big book. 
And we're committed to continuing to ride it after the partner restrictions are lifted. I think what has happened is, is that the partner restrictions have exposed so many gaps in maternity services, but also in women's health. And I think what's been amazing about this campaign is seeing an entire generation of women and their partners coming together to say, we will not accept that anymore. And we will do whatever we can to drive that forward in a way that, you know, we can. So I think that's the first thing to say to people is that we are not going anywhere. The second thing about how do you do it all, people ask me this all the time, Alison, and I never have a good answer because I'm I'm just being me and kind of doing it. One thing I will say to people is I don't really exercise. I don't really rest. I like my child has me up at half five in the morning. I, I steal time from myself. So if I'm in the middle of like having a cup of tea, I'll like maybe log on and check something. Um, but also like, you know, where myself and my husband are incredibly well supported in that like he he supports me incredibly by doing a lot of, you know, the kind of life admin and stuff like that that comes with, you know, having a house with there's four people living it, uh, two tiny terrorists and two adults who both work full time. My my union that I work for has been so incredibly supportive of all of this campaign. Um, and that has been absolutely massive as well. And also, you know, our extended family live close by and we have lots of support. So like we're in a very privileged position to be able to have that time. So it's, we can't underestimate absolutely the work that we don't and we value you and, and we don't underestimate the work that you've done. We also really, really do appreciate everybody who's been getting in touch and sending in their stories to us. And it's maturing at go loud uh, And this podcast has been a great privilege to be part of. And I'm glad we've been able to do it. And we really thank everybody for sharing their stories. That's almost it for this week. But before we go, we would like to thank all the amazing frontline healthcare workers who've worked so, so hard throughout this time. We haven't forgotten that. Yeah. And we also want to thank each and every person who's gotten in touch with us, whether on social media or via email at maternity at goloudnow.com. We really appreciate hearing from you and your bravery like Anne-Marie's in, in, in sharing uh, your personal experiences with us. Finally, then, as always, we've asked today's guest what they'd say to our Taoiseach and Health Minister if they could. We leave you with Anne-Marie's thoughts on that. Well, I know maternity restrictions have um, have been lifted, but they need to do so much more for women and for the maternity services in regards to funding and just the whole system seems to be so outdated. Um, like there should be more information on like the likes of preeclampsia and just more funding for research and I think they should also have leaflets for what to expect from your first booking scan right through to when you give birth. Like you don't actually know what happens at your 20 week scan or what they look out for. And I do believe women need to have more scan, more ultrasounds throughout pregnancy not just the 12 or the 20 week um they do need to have a lot more there needs to be a lot more um assessments through ultrasounds and there just needs to be a lot more funding for maternity um and 
you know, they they spend so much time looking into reopening other sectors and maternity just fell on deaf ears for so, so long. They could have, um, you know, I don't know, done the antigen testing for partners um, or tried to do rapid testing for partners. There was a way and they just didn't they just didn't look for it. Birthing a Nation, Pregnancy and the Pandemic is a Go Loud original podcast produced at Go Loud Studios and proudly supported by our partners at Cross Bauer Media Audio Ireland. If you like what you've heard, please make sure to subscribe to the show and tell your friends and family to check it out too. And if today's guest has inspired you to share your story, get in touch with us at maternity at goloudnow.com and check out the Better Maternity Care hashtag on social media to find out how you can get involved with the organisations we've discussed. Birthing a Nation, Pregnancy and the Pandemic is researched and produced by Sue Murphy, who co-hosts with Alison Curtis and Suzanne Kane. Executive produced by D. Reddy with editing and sound design by Owen Brennan. <laughs>